Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Mathematics. Our guest today is Al Brunsting, who has co-authored, along with Thomas McFall, a truly provocative book entitled God is Here to Stay. Al originally asked me to participate in the review process for the book. I think this is a book that is well worth reading, no matter what your religion, even if you have no religion at all. My own area of expertise is mathematics, but I found this book so interesting that I asked Al if he would let me interview him, even though there were doubtless others who could ask more insightful questions. Al, thanks for consenting, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Jim, and I hope your uh, you and your listeners will find our, our discussion interesting. I'm sure they will. Al, with most books, the question of how did you come to write this book gets one of several standard answers, but your book is different. Why don't you tell our listeners about how this book came into being? Sure, yes. Uh, this is a topic, the existence of God, that has been my passion for most of my adult life. I have struggled with this issue on whether or not God exists, especially considering modern scientific conclusion. I am a scientist myself, and this book is uh, my answer to this struggle that I've had. And I've been fortunate to have a partner uh, on this project, Tom McFall, who is an accomplished philosopher, professor of comparative religions, and a published author. Your listeners might be interested in three brief, briefly described themes in our book. Uh, they are, one, science has had more impact on the modern world in the last 200 years than any other factors Examples of this are found in the areas of communication, transportation, health, and standard of living. Two, in addition, science has led us to an understanding of the key role of evolution in our world. This has resulted in an enormous conflict between religion and science, where in order to believe in God, many think it necessary to reject science. And the third key theme is... Uh, is there an alternative to this? And we believe our is, there is, and our book is an answer uh, to what that alternative might be. Al, thanks very much. You discuss the question of whether or not God exists within the framework of a different methodology than those usually brought to bear on this question, or at least more usual than the ones that I'm familiar with. Could you elaborate on this? Uh, yes, uh, the debate about God's existence has been going on forever, and the results are inconclusive. Uh, as a result of new science in the last few hundred years, especially Darwin and evolution, that debate has intensified. Both sides use science to make their case for or against the existence of God. And here's our punchline. Science cannot be used to conclusively resolve this debate. Therefore, we are left with, and this is what we propose as our new approach, we're left with evidence and confidence levels, but not proof. So, Jim, you're a mathematician, uh, and you know that the, uh, that the three angles inside a triangle always add up to 180 degrees, plus or minus zero, all the time, forever. And that's uh, kind of like the proof we're thinking of here. 
confidence, uh, evidence and confidence is more like being on a jury and being asked to consider uh, circumstantial evidence. Well, that's one of the things that made me feel that I was competent to conduct this interview is because there is a bunch of mathematics involved in your book, even though the math you outline the methodology, basically that of hypothesis testing, rather than go into the nuts and bolts, which is perfectly fine. But um, I am, as I say, an interviewer for new books in mathematics. And if it had not been for that, somebody else would definitely have been conducting this interview. Okay. Well, uh, I'm I'm reminded of the Stephen Hawking book uh, published in the mid 1980s, I believe it was, Brief History of Time, blockbuster bestseller. Before writing that book, his publishers told him, Stephen, for every equation you include in your book, your sales will go down by a factor of ten. So when you read that book, you don't see a single equation in there except possibly equals E equals MC squared. Yeah, I you know I know how it is. Having written a bunch of books in mathematics, the moment you put math in the title, um, all of a sudden you have a tendency to reduce your readership by a lot. Anyway, as I read your book, I wondered how different groups would react to it. That includes both different religions and atheists. Have you received any input from either of these groups? Uh, yes, we have. We've received some atheists. In fact, uh, I responded to uh, uh, a set of atheist requirements just this morning uh, by email. And, of course, we've had many uh, theists read our book, including uh, a seminary professor and others, uh, plus others who are, it's unclear what they are, such as the great author uh, Rodney Stark, who's also re- responded. Both All of these people generally seem to uh, have a, are very supportive of our book, much uh, more supportive than what I expected, which is, of course, is very gratifying. Yeah, something like support is always welcome whenever you're writing something that has the ten- that has a possibility of being controversial. I wouldn't know because none of the stuff I ever write is controversial. <laughs> anyway, the title of your book obviously expresses the conclusion at which you arrived. Since you adopted a scientific methodology for this investigation, let me ask you this. If this were the test of a new drug or a hypothesis in a social science experiment, would the hypothesis that God is here to stay be accepted or rejected? That is a great question. And my answer is that all experimental results have associated uncertainties. No results have zero uncertainty. Uh, Our book is the only one in the science religion genre that we know of that gives our readers our specific conclusions in terms of numbers and associated uncertainties. So we, we and we do that with numbers, of course. Acceptance or reject. Going back to your question about acceptance of a new drug in relation to our book here, um, acceptance or rejection of a conclusion partially depends on the amount of uncertainty the principal investigator is willing to accept. Uh, for example. If a result is, say, three standard deviations above the medical decision point showing safety and effectiveness, then the uh, FDA committee might accept the new drug, um, where one unit of standard deviation is a measure of uncertainty. 
In our book, I would say our final result is about one and a half standard deviations above the theological decision point in favor of God's existence, as the title indicates. This probably would not pass stringent FDA acceptance criteria. Uh, Also, our result is based on subjective conclusions of the evidence and not the quantitative results, for example, that come from a double-blind experiment. So I would say that our methods are more similar to a jury uh, considering uh, circumstantial evidence rather than uh, FDA approval of a new drug. Al, I think that's a very fair answer, and it's one of the reasons that I was comfortable reading your book, because I felt that what happened was you didn't say, here it is. What you did was you said, yeah, this is the level at which we feel that we can accept this hypothesis. And although probably many of our listeners are familiar with the criteria that the various different institutions use, because statistics is a part not only of social science, but of forensics and also of the physical sciences and medicine as well, they're differing levels. And um, I think, you know, I think you handled that particular question, which I must admit was a little on a tricky side very well. Anyway, the first day that I started teaching, I had a very strange experience. I had a student come into my office and ask, when will they be able to use computers to prove the existence of God? This was in the late 1960s, so computers weren't at the level that they were now. But anyway, I ducked it by sending him over to the philosophy department. But let me ask you, do you ever think that computers or mathematics or any tools that man can devise will ever be able to settle this question? I... um. The short answer is probably no, but I do think uh, math and computers and tools like that can help us uh, on the intermediate quest to get to uh, whether or not God exists. So, for example, in Chapter 3, we have a table of 19 uh, specific type, um, what we'll call evidences, and we've made some... Um, assumptions about how important each evidence is in relationship to not the existence of God, but the uh, randomness and um, the universe coming about because of randomness and undirected causes. So there's an example. Plus, you know, in the last chapter in our L&M scale where we're trying to wrap up the whole picture for the user um, into one uh, neat, tidy uh, little table, uh, the L&M table here, to come to an overall result here. We use some simple uh, math for that. But I'm sure there's room for math and analysis um, in some of these uh, intermediate type questions, especially in the area of uh, the anthropic principle and the, uh, the tight limits that seem to be necessary uh, that our universe uh, has to, to support and to generate self-conscious, self-aware life. I think that's a very, you know, 
that's a very reasonable attitude to take. I mean, I would sort of look at it along the lines of baseball records are always being set. Things are, you know, things always get better in terms of improving things. And you don't really expect that math and science will enable you to backtrack from this. You think that they'll probably be enable you to move forward from it. But let me ask you another question that is not that I didn't really see explicitly addressed in your book, but maybe I missed it. Do you think it is possible to infer any characteristics of God beyond mere existence? Um. We don't discuss that. That's likely to be in book two. Uh, our book is not about the characteristics of God, but about establishing the confidence levels based on scientific evidence, including the fuzz in the data. So um, we, uh, we see that as, as a basis. You need to get started somewhere. So if you can have a higher uh, confidence level that God exists, then that will help you and motivate you possibly to look more carefully uh, at the characteristics uh, that God might have uh, beyond just existence. Uh, the other thing I would point out is our book, our humble book, is just 200 pages here. You know, if we included the characteristics of God and as seen by the world's great major religions, uh, we'd probably wind up with a 12-volume set of 800 pages per volume. Yeah, it reminds me, I, uh, I have another review to do of another book shortly, and the author, the author said much the same thing, that he started out with one game plan and was forced to abridge it somewhat. Anyway, let's get to some of the specifics in your book. In the first chapter, you present several classic arguments for the existence of God. These arguments are cosmological, teleological, ontological, and moral. Do you suppose you could discuss each of these arguments a little for the benefit of our listeners? Yes. Uh, proponents and opponents have used these four arguments to support their positions on the existence or non-existence of God. And there are other arguments, too, not just these four. But what uh, Tom McFall, my co-author, has done is he's identified the four most important arguments people have used for the existence of God, and he's summarized them in a uh, really uh, fair-minded way. The cosmological argument is about cause and effect. For every effect, there has to be a cause. So if you go far enough back in the food chain of cause and effects, uh, you, you have to start somewhere. So the assumption is that starting point is God. Uh, I, might, I might add that for each of these four uh, proofs, or seemingly proofs, Tom gives a nice, succinct a counter-argument for why they don't really work. The teleological argument refers to every effect as having a purpose. And the classic example of that was if you find a watch while on a hike, you, uh, you assume that the watch itself has a purpose and didn't come into being by random effects. The third one is the moral argument which concludes that the Creator has instilled in every one of us a natural morality. And uh, the fourth one is ontological argument, which says that God is the most perfect being that one can conceive. 
And we conclude that none of these arguments have been successfully used to prove God's existence beyond a doubt. Clearly, in our opinion, you need something more. Uh, I think you've summarized those arguments very well. And I was thinking back to some of the courses that I took in college and high school when they examined some of the arguments. In particular, I remember the first cause argument that I read in uh, St. Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica. And I think I wrote a paper on it, but that was about 60 years ago. But since then, you know, one of the possible arguments against God as the creator is simply to assume that the universe has always been there. After all, you can see the universe. Um, you can't see God. So would you care to address that argument? Yes. Um, the, the universe has always been there. In the, in the, uh, depends on our perception of time. And, of course, we're just dealing with just uh, inconceivably long lengths of time here. Um, in the 1960s, Fred Hoyle, was an, uh, who was an opinion-leading astronomer at that time, advocated that the steady-state universe was always as we now see it. Nothing changes from, say, 100 billion years in the past, extrapolating out to 100 billion years in the future. So, But recent evidence uh, has shown, like from the Hubble Space Telescope and other sources, that... Uh, has shown and has uh, mo indicated to most astronomers and most cosmologists to conclude that a steady state explanation is not nearly as good as an explanation based on the Big Bang and cosmic inflation. And uh, our current understanding of the beginning of the universe seems to be more supportive of an intelligent creator, but certainly not a proof. And there are, there are really smart people, Stephen Hawking and some others, who uh, have indicated how you can have a Big Bang without violating um, conservation of energy and uh, some other basic physical uh, principles like the second law of thermodynamics. One of the things that I enjoyed about your book is that no matter what point you have, you know, ma no matter what your perspective on this particular question is, you can learn a lot about the physical and social sciences simply by reading your book. And when I read your book, most of what I, you know, most of what I read about the physical science aspects, I knew because after all, that's, you know, that's my turf. But the social sciences were very, very intriguing to me because other than, you know, other than a one-year course in psychology long ago and far away, I haven't paid much attention to it. And that was, you know, that was certainly interesting. And that's one of the reasons that I felt that your book was a worthwhile read and a worthwhile discussion for new books in mathematics, simply because there is so much science and social science in it that that alone justifies the price of the book as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, though, the second chapter of your book addresses the uniqueness of humanity. It's the only species we know that pur purposefully seeks to acquire knowledge. How does this relate to the question of the existence of God? Uh, 
Well, first of all, let me say uh, thank you for those kind words. I really appreciate it. And I'd also like to point out that my co-author, Tom McFall, has a Ph.D. in uh, it's something like sociology and uh, philosophy or something like that. But anyway, he's definitely the humanist, and that's what he brings to the party. And I think if your readers will examine um, all other books, at least most other books in this science-religion genre, they will not find a partnership like we have and like uh, what Tom brings to the table with the, on the humanity side of the question. So uh, getting back to your question about the connection between human desire to seek knowledge and the existence of God, uh, here's how we see it. Um, about 200,000 years ago, it seems like a, a new, the newer part of the brain was recently evolved and, and came into use, the cerebral cortex. And this new part of the brain seems to be associated with consciousness, knowledge-seeking, moral consciousness, self-awareness, religion, and some other factors. And that's some of that's summarized uh, in our book in Chapter 6. We've got a little uh, flow chart that summarizes that. And so we, uh, what we, in, we interpret uh, um, the we, we understand this to mean that uh, an intelligent creator embedded this um, higher brain, the cerebral cortex, and, and as a result of that, this knowledge-seeking. But we also recognize that that's really uh, soft information, and you, can't, you certainly can't build a proof on that. But... Uh, so we assign the, the, uh, a larger uncertainty for the existence of God in our final chapter, chapter 8, due to our knowledge-seeking tendencies compared to other areas in the book. Uh, I'm reminded of, a, and of this business about seeking knowledge is I'm reminded of a world map I saw in the National Geographic magazine about six months ago. It showed our current understanding of how humankind populated the entire globe. And certainly much of that in, uh, exploration was due to survival and naturalistic motivations, no doubt about that. But my suspicion is that some of that exploration was due to a curiosity. What's over that next hill? What's, a, what's across that near, nearby body of water? Uh, what's beyond that next desert? But uh, I think that curiosity is at least in part driven by the higher brain, which is guided into being by an intelligent creator. Um, I think it's fair that you put a lower degree of certainty on this because it's not a weak point in your argument. But when there's more uncertainty, obviously, the, you know, the less sure you can be of your conclusion. Anyway, one of the things that you discussed in that last remark of yours would dealt with evolution. And evolution has always been a contentious issue for religions the moment it first arose. Where does your book stand on the theory of evolution? And does evolution present a problem for those who believe in God as creator? Uh, I think evolution does present a problem for some people who believe in God as creator. I think, uh, generally speaking, for the, for the fundamentalist Christians 
um, and for uh, the biblical uh, literalists would be two examples of where it does create a problem. So, I mean, if you are a biblical literalist and you ta- obviously take the uh, story of uh, Genesis uh, seriously as scientific, fact, testable fact, you wind up with a young earth and you wind up with uh, other um, other conclusions that clearly are not consistent with our modern understanding of of the Earth, how it developed. Uh, the Earth formed about 4.5 billion years ago, not 10,000 years ago, and other factors there. Uh, but if you're willing to move away somewhat from that from that position and and um, entertain the concept uh, the conclusions that science really is uh, modern science does for the most part have probably has uh, valid conclusions and offer of valid explanations for how it came into existence particularly. For those evidences that are taken from different fields, but are still internally consistent with each other, and which is, of course, what we what we uh, recommend. And and if you do, and if you're willing to do that, then we see no problem with evolution and the existence of God. For some, there is a problem, uh, but we don't see it. Uh, we don't see a problem. By the way, we we sense that uh, there's a kind of polarization going on uh, in our culture today, where uh, we have uh, uh, the new atheists, atheists and agnostics, uh, supporting an entirely naturalistic explanation of our world and universe, and we have. Uh, you know, biblical literalists and fundamentalists and evangelicals and others who are uh, kind of coming to the conclusion that uh, if you if you believe in God, then you have to reject science. And of course, the other side is saying if we accept science, then we're going to have to reject God. And so, our book offers a sort of a compatibility, so that um, you. Both sides can and and have a kind of compatibility uh, to, to that issue. Um, I must admit, one of the things that I find appealing is the fact that your book does stress the, that compatibility. Because one of the difficulties that I see in society today, and believe me, I'm not a you know observer of society, but it's obviously a lot more polarized than it has been in the past. Not just on the issue of science and religion, but it's you know on on the issues of politics, stuff like this. And yep. it seems to me that we used to be a lot more civil a society, and in that sense, you know, science and religion have sometimes been viewed as antagonistic, but for a long period of time, most of the leading scientists were religious and many of them still are. And yeah. Of course, I think there's probably more non-religious scientists today than there were in the past, but that's simply because there are more non-religious people today than there were. Do you believe that science has heretofore been reluctant to tackle questions such as your book addresses, either because the scientists themselves were religious or because there was some sort of onus against tackling this question. Um, it's it's hard to say, and but my uh, suspicion is that getting getting such a message out that uh, there, there is this compatibility area 
that that's hard. That's hard to do. I mean, uh, as you know, Jim, uh, getting a book published is not a trivial matter by any means. And then once you get it published, uh, encouraging people to uh, read it that you think it would be meaningful for, uh, that's hard to do. Now, if you're Hillary Clinton uh, writing about almost anything, then it's going to be easy. You've already got a name, name recognition and so forth. Also, um, we it's pretty much well understood that in the publishing business, uh, people are not reading as much now, and the, uh, and the people that are reading like to read electronically as well as ink on paper. So I'm sure that many scientists know that, and they maybe some of them have concluded that, you know, that's, that's too high of a hill to climb, and I'd, I'd just rather do other things. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, getting back to some of the topics you discuss in your book, at some stage life appeared. Do you believe that the transition from non-life to life is evidence for the existence of God, or does it simply happen given the right conditions, or is there some sort of middle ground you might adopt here? I, I would adopt a, a middle ground, but of course, no one really knows the answer to that. Uh, life first appeared on our planet uh, 3.85 billion years ago, and it seems like uh, as soon as the Earth was ready for life, it had cooled off enough, and the atmosphere had uh, settled down enough, and there was fewer... Uh, less bombardment from the other places in the solar system that and and less sterilizing events on the planet as soon as that as soon as that settled down and as soon as earth was ready for life that seems to be when life started um but I would say that we see in in surveying that whole landscape of evidences about when uh, life got started here, I would say, and, and this is a subjective conclusion, certainly, I would claim it's almost impossible, it's probably impossible to put uh, put a number on this, but I would say that we, we see more uncertainty for randomness and less uncertainty for an intelligent designer here. And uh, when we can combine this consideration with other evidences and their uncertainties, uh, you know, throughout the rest of the book, we arrive at an overall conclusion that God probably exists. Um, but you know, there's, there's, there. Right now, my understanding is right now there are seven kind of prevailing hypotheses for how life got started here, but none of them have been have have enjoyed a widespread acceptance, which isn't surprising because if you go back. 3.85 billion years ago, you, there's an extremely high uncertainty of what the conditions were like on Earth. It's, it's not only what the conditions were like, but the variability in the conditions. So, I mean, if there was a little um, a, a transformation from lawn life to life at a certain spot, it might just have happened to be in just exactly the right spot on that uh, inhospitable planet. Yeah, you know, I've read several very, very appealing discussions of this, and uh, 
Um, one of them was in uh, John Casty's uh, Paradigms Lost, which was a book that was written in the 1990s where he sort of summarizes some of these arguments. But I must admit, as someone who came of age during the 1950s and 1960s, when I read about the Miller-Urey experiments, with which I'm sure you're familiar, when this graduate student took a, you know, took a flask filled with prebiotic chemicals that existed on the early earth zapped it with you know zapped it with electricity for a few weeks and then found that there were amino acids there to me that swung the balance to yeah it's probably going to happen but I never thought that this really the fact that life could happen given the right circumstances to me I never thought that that invalidated uh, invalidated a problem with God as a creator but let's discuss another aspect of life which is perhaps you know perhaps unique to human beings the idea that before there was consciousness, there was life. Do you think life inevitably leads to consciousness? And can this be seen as evidence for the existence of God? Um, my personal speculation is that um, the um, that, consci- that life does not necessarily lead to consciousness. Uh, you could certainly you can certainly have life evolving up through a more advanced bacterial single cell or small a small uh, small number of cellul- cells per uh, per life form without having consciousness. Uh, consciousness seems to be such a uh, such a special uh, touchy complicated issue here. We have a uh, hundred billion, not million, billion neurons in our brain, and most of most of the neurons have uh, a thousand plus uh, axions that connect with other neurons. So I mean that's that's just uh, extraordinarily complex, and our consciousness arises out of such a brain. So um, you know any uh, anything about Anything you say about consciousness, I would say it would be a speculative. Um, so I, I, I just would conclude that consciousness is a really special state. And it wouldn't surprise me if uh, self-aware consciousness is only found on the earth. But, of course, I have no proof of that. That's just a speculation on my part. Well, I must admit that does lead to the next question that I was going to ask, and I think you've answered it. But nonetheless, I'll ask it anyway, because it's always been a subject that's been not only a fascination to me, but everybody who has ever watched or ever read science fiction. Do you think life exists elsewhere in the universe? And if life exists elsewhere in the universe, do you think consciousness exists elsewhere in the universe? Um, So... Right. So my personal speculation, as I said, is that there is life elsewhere in the universe, but but probably not consciousness. And I have a, a quote from Enrico Fermi, who's the famous uh, physicist and key player in the Manhattan Project. Uh, he, he's quoted as saying something like this. If there is intelligent extraterrestrial life, uh, where is it? Question mark. So the basic idea is that if you do have conscious, uh, self-aware life, uh, you, you, the assumption is that they would, they would build a technology 
that would uh, translate into signals and communications, say, across uh, a lot of toward a lot of space and so forth. If they were, you know, more advanced than we are, so I mean, that would be one kind of negative result. Uh, we haven't seen. Of course, that doesn't prove anything. I'm not saying that, but I'm. I, I just find his uh, quote interesting on this question. Well, of course, you can get a lot of different scientists on the other side of the issue, namely Carl Sagan, Frank Drake, and all the people who were associated with SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And while I have uh, I have tremendous respect for Enrico Fermi, who not only directed the uh, uh, the first uh, formal splitting of the uh, uh, the first, I guess you would say, nuclear reactor under uh, Stag Field at the University of Chicago in the quest for developing the atom bomb, but also Enrico Fermi wrote a wonderful book on thermodynamics, uh, which was the textbook for uh, my physics course in college. And what I really liked about that book was that it was really short. Um, It's possible to say really good stuff about really important things without taking up a whole lot of time. And that's part of the appeal of your book. Sometimes I get, you know, as you talk, sometimes there are really lengthy volumes on practically everything. But your book, um, it has uh, it has a whole lot of chapters, a whole lot of information, and it doesn't weigh much more than a few ounces. We love right. it. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Anyway, <laughs> anyway uh, okay, let's talk about you know let's talk about purpose, which I can't remember whether this was teleology or ontology, um, but I suspect it's teleology because I think ontology exists in biology, and biology <laughs> doesn't talk much about purpose. But anyway, does the question of the existence of God bear a relation to the question of whether either life or consciousness has a purpose? Yes, I would say yes. We contend, that is, Tom and I contend, that God's existence is related to a purpose for uh, life and consciousness. Uh, Otherwise, uh, we would, we conclude there's only, without purpose, there's only meaninglessness for life and consciousness. And Personally, I find as one of my struggles I've had before getting into this project here was um, meaninglessness. It was it was impossible for me to accept meaninglessness. There has to be a purpose out there, and and and, I, and there's no proof of that. There's no scientific backup for that. Um, God is needed, and what what I claim is God is needed if meaninglessness is unacceptable, which for me it is, and God is ne- God is the only alternative then to meaninglessness or or a being like God, an intelligent creator, a divine designer. Okay, you know, I uh, I appreciate your saying that, and I also appreciate your saying that that's your subjective point of view. Um, my feeling is, you know, my feeling is that uh, I'm not sure that this is actually uh, that this is actually fundamental to the question of the existence of God. But I did want to ask it because um, lots of, you know, lots of different societies and indeed even computer programs studying uh, studying prisoners dilemma have come up with sort of the idea that there's a purpose that and that purpose has something to do with morality and that gets us to what I would consider to be some of the final questions that I want to ask you because they deal with you know so far what we've dealt with in this conversation is mostly the scientific 
uh, this, or at least what I would think of as the physical scientific aspect of some of the questions. So let me bring you. Uh, let me bring you to. Uh, uh, to some discussion of what I would say are social science, religion, philosophy questions. And one of your chapters states that the brain is structured for spiritual experiences. Um, again, this might be subjective, but what would you classify as spiritual experiences? Do you think evolution has been guided so that this is the case, or did it just happen? Uh- Tom and I understand spiritual experiences to be enhanced uh, sensitivity to a reality beyond the material world, a reality beyond matter. Uh, And yes, we would contend that the capacity to experience this reality results from the development of the higher brain, which we interpret as guided by by God. So... um, but then, of course, you have to also then think about well, there there are there are people that seem to be especially sensitive to uh, spiritual experiences and, and feelings and so forth. Um, unfortunately, I'm not one of them, which is translated in this lifelong struggle I've had. And so, uh, for those that don't don't aren't especially well developed uh, in that area. Uh, we probably have to fall back more on uh, a kind of uh, evidence approach uh, like we like we're taking in this book. Our book is not based on feeling or a sense of religious sensitivities, but uh, as much as possible on the uh, scientific and social uh, evidences that we see here. Well, as I said, I'm a creature of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and there was extensive investigation of this during the 50s, 60s, and 70s, but they were done by Timothy Leary, aided by psychedelic drugs, Carlos Castaneda, same thing. Um, There was a lot of investigation of spiritual experiences as, um, as... stimulated, if you will, through uh, uh, through chemical means. And that's one of the reasons that I ask you that particular question, because this was, you know, this was certainly, uh, a, you know, certainly a fundamental facet of the world in which I came of age. And it's sort of been discounted nowadays. And I think that in some ways, it's sort of a shame, because I think that um, I think that uh, uh, and and I have to put in a disclaimer. Somebody said to me that I was the least I was the least spiritual individual that they had ever encountered in their entire life. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, I can listen to a Beethoven symphony, or I can have a uh, uh, I can have a really good meal, or go even further with something like really good sex, and you have an experience that is transcendent that transcends the ordinary material one. And I think that the quest for you know the quest for spiritual experiences is a legitimate one that has been pursued by a number of cultures, and I think it's valuable, uh, and also various individuals. And I think it's valuable that you did include this in your book. Okay. Yeah. Good. And, and, Okay, and also there's another thing that uh, uh, that came up. You claim that humanity is structured for justice. I think most of us hope and believe that this is the case, but why would this have anything to do with the question of whether God exists? Why isn't it simply an effect of so- societal development? Societies with a sense of justice do better than those without. Uh, well, there's um, it probably does have something to do with uh, uh, societal development. 
And uh, there, there probably is a, a naturalistic explanation uh, for this, component explanation for this. Uh, our, uh, over and above that, so we're not discounting that, but I would say over and above that, our sense of justice is uh, related to, at least in part, related to the development of the higher brain. And this development of the higher brain is really key for a lot of for a number of our chapters here, especially the ones on uh, justice, morality, and knowledge, um, which happen to be exactly the chapters that Tom wrote, by the way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I'm interviewing you, not him. <laughs> no, 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 sure, sure. I just uh, give you a little piece of inside information there. So uh, the capacity for being fair, which is our sense of justice, we see as part of God's design for self-aware, for self-aware life. And uh, that's, we don't see that as being particularly uh, inconsistent with, with societal development. Okay. I'm sorry, did you wish to continue? Well, I, I think I'm, I just had another thought there, too, that um, societal development, which is more of a, of a naturalistic explanation, more of a, more leads to a focus on uh, survival, on, on survival advantages, too. So in our overall um, desire to achieve compatibility between uh, a naturalistic explanation and uh, God exists explanation. This is uh, consistent with that. Um, Yes, I think, you know, I I can understand where you're coming from there. And once again, I mean, maybe this is uh, maybe this is injecting some of my own points of view in it. But I think that the fact that uh, this that there are societies and also uh, I think I may have mentioned that there's a, uh, a situation involving prisoner's dilemma, which I studied somewhat 20 years ago. And prisoner's dilemma is a very complex question about how how people should react with various rewards. And the computer program, uh, and this is, as I say, from 20 years ago, that played Prisoner's Dilemma best was a program called Tit for Tat. And Tit for Tat basically was a uh, structured along the lines of do unto others as you would have others do unto you. It was a computer program which basically fulfilled that. And it's sort of interesting to me from I guess you would say the naturalistic standpoint rather than the uh, uh, rather than the social science standpoint that a computer program that worked along these lines just worked best in a situation in which justice was involved and so I probably myself subjectively come down on the other side, but I'm very well aware that these are subjective issues and possibly, you know, they may never be resolved and that's part of the fun. Mathematics has fun in two instances, when the problems are resolved and when they're not. (laughs) 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 Anyway, and I think actually one of the reasons that I sort of uh, was looking forward to this conversation is that it's fulfilled my expectations because I don't recall having a conversation like that since I left college. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's good to have, it's good to, you know, <laughs> it's the way things work. Anyway, another claim that, uh, that you make in your book is that humanity is structured for universal morality. And doesn't the same problem arise here that if it is evidence that God exists, it is at best second order, namely the way that humanity is actually developed rather than first order, that this is a purpose that God 
imbued in uh, in our development. Yes. Very good question. I, I really like your discussion there of uh, Prisoner's Dilemma and Tit for Tat. That's uh, that's really good. I'm, I'm going to have to read more about that when uh, we're done. It's probably been superseded. <laughs> it's probably been superseded by a program called Greed is Good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, mastered by uh, some of our uh, financial leaders there in Wall Street. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the uh, question about uh, universal morality and its uh, connection with evidence that God exists. Um, the thing that was in Chapter 7, which is our chapter on morality here, we have a table. And we have, uh, if, your reader, if your listeners uh, eventually want to look at this, it's Table 11. But basically, that table shows a statement uh, of the golden rule and the silver rule. The silver rule is don't do others unto others as they would, that you don't want them to do unto you. Golden rule is do unto others as you'd like to have them do unto you. That, uh, in that table shows many different statements. Uh, statements that all lead to the same conclusion. The golden rule of silver rules are the common denominator conclusions in each row of that table. And there's about 20, 35 rows here, which shows an impressive consistency in human morality of many cultures and over time. And we make the case there in Chapter 7 that Human morality is best uh, explained uh, culture to culture and over time with a universal morality, not uh, other um, kinds of moralities that are uh, depend on the moment and uh, might might uh, or or no morality at all. So. So what we conclude is that that, that universal morality and the a nice piece of evidence is table 11 there, that that's part of God's design for self-aware life. So that's that's our conclusion on that. And then we assign a, a weight to that, which, uh, which you see in chapter, uh, our last chapter, chapter 8. Well, as I said, I have a background reading science fiction, and when I was reading about the Golden Rule and the Silver Rule, I thought of uh, Isaac Asimov, who wrote stories about robotics based in the 1940s, and some of his universal law, uh, some of his laws of behavior for robots, which some of you know more recent science fiction might think of as prime directives or something like that, um, seem to be analogs of this, and it just goes to show how pervasive the these ideas are yep. that not only can they be applied to you know not only can they be applied to societies but they can also be applied to such things as uh, as robots and in getting to your last chapter and you've discussed this we've sort of had an advanced discussion of this a little what you have is you have something called the LM scale of confidence level L being least and M being most and it involves a number of different criteria and uh, you look at the various different criteria in your book, and I think, you know, some of them tend to be independent. Some of them are sort of related to each other. I mean, my feeling was that the social science ones sort of flowed into each other in a way that the, uh, in a way that the physical science ones tended to be a little more separate. Anyway, the confidence level for most of them was about 80% or higher, with I think one exception. I think you had one of them down around 65%. Don't you think this would 
would argue for an overall confidence level of more than the 80% that you actually conclude? Uh, well, first of all, yes, I'm sure there's some uh, inner, inner variable dependencies there. And to get uh, to, to get an overall uh, result, uh, uncertainty result, you would like to have each of your variables be uh, independent of each other. Uh, but we can't do that. I mean, it's the, uh, it, the, this, these topics are so uh, subjective, are subjective. That, that's why I like to go back to the, to the jury analogy here. When, if you're in a jury and the prosecutor uh, doesn't have a smoking gun, doesn't have a body, and doesn't have any eyewitnesses, all you got are circumstantial evidences. This is the kind of thing you have to do in a jury hearing. Um, so uh, we so we recognize that there are some of these inner variable dependencies, uh, but but in spite of this, we use a simple average for, for the total result here. Now we also want our book to be as objective as possible. We want to avoid circular reasoning. We want to avoid subjective conclusions. Uh, we don't want to be accused of injecting our worldview, you know, into the text. Somehow, we want to be as objective as possible. Um, so, we, um, if we make uh, if we make a mistake or uh, an an estimate, we want to we want to favor randomness and undirect undirected design. We don't want to come across as injecting favoritism for the existence of God. So if we can still do that and injects, if anything, inject favoritism for randomness, but still come out with a conclusion that God exists, uh, that strengthens our arguments, which of course uh, we want to do. We use that same approach in Chapter 3 for the 19 uh, evidences for the anthropic principle, which we uh, just uh, mentioned briefly earlier here. Uh, the, the assumptions made in analyzing uh, that table were certainly friendly toward randomness. Uh, so we, we, we feel like this, this strengthens the, uh, the overall thesis of our book. Yeah, I think that, you know, I think that, you know, golfers have an expression, miss it on the high side. And I think that that's, <laughs> I, I think you've managed to do that. Al, I'd like to thank you so much for participating in this interview. And you've sort of, uh, sort of alluded to the possibility of a book two in the future. But do you have any other projects in which our listeners might be interested? Well, uh, we, we, this book was just published uh, in April here. And we're, we're trying to get our this message and get the themes of our book out uh, out in the public and which is going to mean uh, speaking engagements it's going to mean other book reviews and so mm -hmm. forth uh, so that's the main thing we're focused on now and I'm sure we'll come up with uh, eventually we'll come up with a volume two and I think uh, or a second edition or an, the next book. Uh, and I'm sure that will depend in large extent the kind of reactions we get from readers, especially thoughtful readers and from uh, interviews like this one. Well, I certainly hope this has been what you consider to be a thoughtful interview, because let me tell you, it's not my normal turf. And I just want, you know, I want you to know that I did my best. And I hope that, you know, I really think that your book is worth reading by practically anybody who's ever had any thoughts on this subject one way or the other. And I wish you the best of success with it. Al, thank you so sure. much for participating sure. in this. Thank you, Jim. Very good. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> 